That's right. Decade now. Thank you. Um, and uh, so if we haven't met, love to meet and uh, say hi and get to know you a bit. Uh, you've already probably heard a little bit about RUF, and so we try to just to help you understand who we are. We have all these fun, little, easy slogans, but they all are true. Here's one i like for you to try on and think about. RUF wants to be a place where you can come to know God's love and rest in it that you might be changed by it. That's what we want for everyone. We want them we want you to know God's love, to understand it, so that you can rest in it, and we believe that love changes us. We want to be transformed by it. We want to be a place where that happens for people. Uh, the way we do that is uh, we go to the scriptures, we go to the word. And uh, last week, uh, we, we gave up years ago trying to compete with this giant bonfire thing on Thursday nights. So we did this little thing on a, on a worship night where we just looked briefly at chapter 13 in John, verse 1. This semester we're doing a study uh, that we're calling Jesus' Farewell uh, Lecture. It's from John 13 to 17. These are his parting words to his followers. He knows he's about to die. He has them for an evening. And this is, what he, this is how he spends his time. This is what he says to them. And last week we just looked at one verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 13. And, and two distinct realities came out of that verse, really clearly. Jesus is about to leave. He's going to die. So there's a new reality in this relationship, the reality of distance. Jesus will no longer be with his followers. His followers will no longer be with him. There will be distance in their relationship. That's the first reality. And the second is, Jesus is determined to love his followers to the very end. That's what verse 1 tells us. Those two things. This week, as we come to the text, we, I think we bring those things with us. Some of us come here wondering... How am I going to continue to grow in my faith? How will I come to know Jesus? How will I come to grow in Him? We're experiencing distance from our family, from our churches, from our loved ones, and maybe even from Jesus. And perhaps some of us come here already knowing that distance in our hearts. Like, I don't know who He is. It doesn't really make any sense to me. And the question is, how do we come to know Him? How do we come to know His love? And our text today gives us, I think, a pretty good answer. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 in John chapter 13, and uh, you can follow along up here. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for these students who've come, and uh, at least for a few moments, decided that they are uh, willing and interested in hearing what you have to say. Would you be kind to speak to us through your word, and to show us your goodness and your greatness? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the things I've picked up from uh, what I hope is so far only a half a lifetime of experience is, sometimes it's really easy to miss very important things. Uh, really easy to miss beautiful, majestic things. There was an Instagram photo that sort of went viral a couple years ago of this poor man sitting on a sailboat. The sailboat was part of a whale sighting expedition. 
And the photo is of this guy sitting on the sailboat, and in the foreground of the sailboat is a humpback whale. It's about the size of the sailboat. It's about two feet out of the water. And the guy is intently watching his phone. He never saw the whale. It's from me to you. He just didn't see it. Sometimes it's really easy to miss those big majestic things even when we're looking for them. I'll give you a more recent example, one that uh, I sort of identify with and maybe you can remember. Not so long ago there was this phenomenon, this thing called an eclipse. And uh, half the country lost its mind over this thing. And while some of you were driving half the night to end up in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee or South Carolina, I did what uh, every lazy, sensible person would do, and that is nothing. I, uh, and therefore, I missed out on this majestic thing. Uh, an hour before the eclipse, in typical procrastinator Bates fashion, I asked my wife if she would research what a pinhole projector is and make one. <laughs> if you guys know what this is, this is literally a cereal box with a hole cut in the top so that you can watch the eclipse. And if you don't know what this is, what happens is you have a pinhole, literally like the size of a pen, and the sun shines through it, and so you're watching the projection of the sunlight onto the bottom of the box that's like the size of a pen. That's what you see. And then you slowly see it being eaten by the sun. Only it's not very majestic because it's the size of a pinhole, and you're looking at it through a cereal box. So uh, needless to say, I was not bowled over by the eclipse. Uh, wasn't that majestic? Meanwhile, completely reasonable friends of mine and some of you went to see this and, and from what I understand, cried your eyes out because it was one of the most beautiful and majestic things you'd ever seen. Um, Sometimes it's really easy to miss the big, beautiful, majestic thing and to to wonder at the end of it, oh, what's the big deal? Eh, I didn't really get a good view of it. What's the big deal? Uh, It can be easy for us to come to a text like this or come to college and hear about Jesus and his greatness and then wonder what's the big deal we can underappreciate his greatness we can miss it um, for any number of reasons maybe we just have a bad understanding maybe we have a bad point of view we can't understand them very clearly uh, in, in uh, eclipse analogies we're not in the path of totality I don't have a very good view of it from here. It doesn't make any sense to me. Or maybe we're distracted by all these other great things that we're interested in. Or maybe it's, it's just too far away. It's just too distant. Too old, too long ago. Or maybe even in your own experience. Like, yeah, I was really interested in that. I really, I really felt like Jesus was great and I knew his love. But that was like four years ago. And it just doesn't, it's not the same anymore. And, and I've got other things going on that seem more important. Tonight, our text gives us a very small but very clear glimpse of how Jesus is great and how his love is great. And when we see Jesus clearly, in our text, when we see him clearly, we see those two things. We see his greatness and we see his great love. And I want us to look at those things tonight. And we see it in a couple different ways. His matchless majesty, his majesty is matchless, there's nothing like it. And his humility that's unheard of. So, jumping in, we, we see his matchless majesty. Jumping in in verse 3, we read of Jesus. He's, he's not speaking. John's writing this of him. That Jesus, in verse 3, 
is from the Father, that he had come from God. The way Jesus speaks about God is shocking to people in his time. He calls him the Father. No one else used that kind of familiar language. Jesus used familiar language for God because he was family. He was from the Father. John, earlier in the book, in chapter 1, says this about Jesus, that he's the Word, who was from the beginning, who was with God. And says later in chapter 1, that he, being the Word, became flesh, and he dwelt right here among us. And that people like John saw his glory, saw it, full of grace and truth, as of the only Son from the Father. So Jesus comes saying, and John comes bearing witness as well, that Jesus is God's own Son. He is the royal son of the great king. He's from a royal origin. He's got this matchless majesty. There's no one like him. But verse 3 also tells us that he comes with a responsibility. He didn't come just to hang out. He has a job to do. That he has been given all things. The Father's put all things in his hands. And it could just mean that he's in charge of everything. But I think it's actually more pointed than that. And What John is saying is that Jesus came with a very specific mission to do two things. To rescue us, his people, and to fix everything that's broken. To restore all things. That he's come to do those things and that God has given him all the authority and resources he needs to rescue us from all our sin and sorrow. And that uh, he's going to do it. And uh, the, it seems to be the case that Jesus, at this point, on the verge of his death, is confident that he's going to be successful. He speaks of his return in verse 1 and verse 3. He speaks of it as a departure, going back to the Father, or returning to the Father. It, it looks like, it sounds like, mission accomplished, going home back to Dad, back to the Father. What our text also tells us, though, is there's, there's trouble brewing there's betrayal right here in the ranks. That, that one of his own men, one of his own followers who's been with him for years, is conspiring with, you know, not just like, not, not, not conspiring with like the Russians. He's conspiring with the devil. Um, and, and what we have here is cosmic conspiracy. Now, before we jump into that rabbit hole, I want to push the pause button real quick and just talk about what we've said so far. John, based on what Jesus says regularly in his life and ministry, is telling us that Jesus is God, who came with a mission to fix everything and rescue his people, that he succeeded and went back to his Father. That is matchless majesty. Of all the great religions in the world, and all those people that founded those religions, no founder of any world religion ever claimed anything like that. I mean, they claimed any number of things, but none of them claimed to be divine. Because people would have thought they were crazy. Jesus claimed to be divine. Claimed to be God's own son. Claimed that he was going back to the Father. Resurrected in the flesh. Now, it's quite possible you're sitting here thinking, I knew eventually we'd get to the crazy stuff. Maybe here we are. But I want to come at this from the other way and say simply... From this room 2,000 years ago to now, we've gone from 13 to 2 billion people that claim to be Christians. That the world is a better place because of what Jesus brought. And that this man, who lived a beautiful life, made these claims. I think it is the intellectual responsibility of any free-thinking person to at least seriously consider this. 
to not just mindlessly adopt the cynicism of your broader culture that says, it's not worth my time, that silly thought, but to seriously consider it. And that, seriously consider it means, I'm sorry, that History Channel documentary does not cut it. It just doesn't. Discovery Channel documentary doesn't cut it. To seriously look into it. And uh, I'm willing to sit down and chat with you. And trust me, it's not going to be an attack. I, I have no... I don't believe that we can make you believe anything you don't want to believe. But I would challenge you, if you haven't spent time considering these claims, to do so. Because of what's at stake. Because of what Jesus claims. And I'll be glad to help you uh, think about that. So, let's unpause the pause button. Back in play. And uh, Jesus... Matchless majesty here. We, we learn that uh, there's this conspiracy afoot, that uh, there's betrayal going on within the ranks, and uh, there's all kinds of things at stake. If this is true, this is not just Jesus and Judas in a room. This is God the Father versus Satan, cosmic battle, fate of mankind at stake. Okay, And it's quite possible to look at this and say, wait a minute, cosmic battle, father versus Satan in a room, that's a little... I mean, we're in a dirty old room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That just doesn't make any sense. It seems so quaint, so unimportant. Um, a couple of years ago, this is what happens when my wife goes away. It's okay, it happens. Um, my wife goes away for the night. I end up doing stuff like Googling best fight scenes of 2015. I was doing that a couple, couple maybe a couple months ago and Googled best fight scenes 2015 and uh, happened upon this movie that's often overlooked, perhaps the most overlooked movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Top of that list was a fight from the movie Ant-Man. And, uh, and and the 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 person writing the review was basically said never seen a more compelling, dramatic, and original fight scene than in this movie. And basically, what you have is good versus evil, high stakes, freedom and safety of the world in play, in a battle taking place inside a briefcase. I mean, the battle, and it's really compelling, you're watching this, it happens inside of a briefcase, because they're both miniature. Ant-Man, got it. Um, you know, and it's, just, it's so small, you could miss it. Like, you didn't even know what was going on. Um, I think there's a meeting after our meeting in this room. So, I'm going to kind of see what's going on there, and then see. Um, are they in here next? Ooh. I know we are. All right, tell them we'll be done in five. So um, we didn't know this. This happened last year too. So what happens here? We have this battle going on, cosmic speaking, and uh, how does Jesus respond? He knows this is happening. He knows there's a battle. He knows there's treachery afoot. How does he respond? Uh, If this was Game of Thrones, we would read this very differently. Look at this, verses two through four. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from, rose from supper. Dramatic pause. Now what happens? Game of Thrones. I don't know. Peter, perhaps, sneaks behind, quietly slits Judas's throat. End of scene. Treachery dealt with. Something like that. 
Old Testament style, floor opens up, Judas is gone. <laughs> He's just gone. Uh, what happens instead is Jesus responds with remarkable humility. Jesus takes not the sword, but the form of a servant. And he demonstrates unheard of humility. And what he does in verse 4 is this, uh, uh, this theologian named... Uh, Lincoln, Thomas Lincoln, called it a dramatic enactment. He takes off his outer garment, he puts on a towel, and he gets down and begins to serve his people. And, and what we have here is Jesus showing, I think, his men what he's been doing his whole life in ministry. Taking off his glory and taking the form of a servant. You can read this in Philippians 2. Jesus, being in the form of God, took the form of a servant. He didn't, he didn't put on his royal airs that he could have done so, his royal priorities. Instead, he served his people in great humility. And then in verse 5, he gave them a preview of a coming attraction. He got down and washed their feet. We'll talk about this more next week. But when you look at this text, you're like, man, that's weird, washing feet. And uh, what you need to know is it was weird then, too. It made sense because the streets were dirty. They didn't have sidewalks. They threw their sewage onto the streets. Uh, it was gross. I have kids. I know what it's like to clean up dirty people. You get dirty. And, uh, but what you need to know is it was weird then, too. No one, no one in the ancient world would have ever washed the feet of someone that was inferior to them. There's no recorded mark or history or text that tells us that this has ever happened. Jesus is being humble in a way that no one was ever humble before. And what he's signaling to his followers and to us is something really important. It's almost like Pictionary. He's acting this out in servant form. And his men are thinking... First, they're thinking, this is, this is awkward and crazy. They're also thinking, humble servant. Washing. He's getting dirty. Sacrificial service. And all this points to what Jesus will do on the cross. This is the preview of a coming attraction. This is the Easter egg that he's pointing to. That Jesus will ultimately serve his followers all the way down to death. Because he loves them. This is what it's all about. If you want to know what his love is like, we get a little picture of it right here and it's beautiful it looks like a king majestic on his knees washing the feet of his friends and it points to a cross where a king that's majestic and in charge of everything willingly dies for his people because he loves them that is great love and i know some of you are coming here thinking like oh you know i can't see it i can't see it i don't understand it i think you're crazy still that's okay i'm okay with you thinking i'm crazy it's happened for a long time um but what i want to say is this right here if you will, this is the path. This is, this is the place where you can see it. Coming to the scriptures, this is where we can see his greatness. And I also know that some of you are coming here wanting to know, will, will God, Jesus meet me in the distance? Will he be here with me? And some of you are thinking, I, I want to be part of something great. I want to do something great. I want us to see right here this, this evening that we have it in Jesus. We have the ultimate great one who comes down to us for us, to be with us, to love us. We can have it right here in this text. In the person of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to pray. And then, unfortunately, we have to run out of here. So, uh, 